welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. <laughs> Rolling. <laughs> welcome back, everyone. This is the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. I'm Ryan Aris. I'm joined as ever by Dr. Joe Boot, and I'm uh, very pleased to have Pastor Nate Wright back with us as well. It's good to see you both. <clears throat> Great Excuse to be able me. to join you today, Ryan. I'm I'm a little jealous looking at uh, Joe's shirt, though. He's got uh, he's got the Top Gun shirt on. So uh, I think he was saying before that this that was a Father's Day gift. That's right. That's uh, that's a great gift. I we were just talking about how great that film was. If any of your listeners haven't watched it yet, they definitely have to watch the uh, the the last non woke action movie of our generation. I think, unfortunately, hopefully it's not. Hopefully they make enough money that uh, they realize that putting all that woke stuff in it is uh, affecting their bottom line. But go watch it. Yeah, Top Gun Maverick. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, it was the most really recent non woke. Maybe that's uh, that's better. Yeah, yeah, most recent. Yeah, awesome. There you well, go. Good to. Uh, yeah, it was. I thought it was really great. Yeah, I agree. Good to have both of you with us. Uh, we are continuing our uh, our series of, uh, of follow up uh, Q and A for from the uh, the Ten Commandments series. So we uh, we began this last week, and uh, we've had uh, we've had enough questions over the course of uh, this series that uh, we've got another episode here. Before we begin, uh, just a couple of announcements about upcoming Ezra Institute events, programs. Now, you've heard us mention uh, several times the Worldview Leadership Academy coming up in Port Colborne, Ontario, uh, July 23rd through 28th. What you won't have heard yet, because uh, this is the first time we're saying it, is that uh, a donor has recently made a uh, some money available to fund scholarships to fill those remaining spots to uh, to bring us up to full capacity. Uh, so there is scholarship money available up to 50% of the registration cost uh, can be uh, can be covered by that uh, that opportunity. And it's not it's not just a send in a request. Uh, you got to show us that you want to be there. And the way that to that you can demonstrate that is that we'd like to see an essay from the applicant, 500 words up to about 800 words. You don't need to write a full book, but you need to write more than a couple of sentences. Tell us why, in your opinion, in your understanding, a Christian worldview is especially important in our current context and especially for a teenage audience, for somebody in that rising generation like yourself. So you can submit that. Uh, just visit our website, EzraInstitute.com. You can submit it through the, uh, the contact email link, uh, or you can also email it to us at info at EzraInstitute.com. July 1st is the deadline for that, so just over a week from now. End of next week, uh, you have to uh, get those essays submitted and uh, tell us why a Christian worldview is important to save up to 50% off your registration cost for the Worldview Leadership Academy. The other thing to uh, mark your calendars and watch this space for more information, we have coming up in Canada two Mission of God conference events. Uh, these are one-day conferences. Uh, December 2nd, happening here in Ontario uh, in, uh, in Windsor, at Harvest Windsor. 
and then December 9th in Calgary, Alberta. So again, EzraInstitute.com will have all the information up there very shortly. Uh, Watch that space, get your tickets for the one that's uh, that's most convenient and uh, closest to you or both. We'd be uh, happy to uh, to welcome uh, you there. We should make a a special um, welcome to the CBC if they want to attend as well. No need That's to right. uh, no need to use a false name or bring any recording devices. It's uh, you know the, an open open invitation to the CBC, right? Well, we'll we'll set up Actually, uh, we'll set up a right press area. Up front. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Please uh, please email us for uh, for media passes as well. Absolutely. <laughs> That's right. Um, <laughs> so as I said, we're we've got. Uh, We've got 10 Commandments question and answer session coming up. Before that, uh, Nate, we've been, uh, we, we're pleased to, to have you on uh, throughout this series, and we'll actually have some, uh, some questions related to, uh, to your episode on Thou Shalt Not Steal. Before we do that, uh, we, have, uh, we have Nate on for uh, yet another reason, and uh, I'll, uh, I'll leave it to you. I'll invite you to, uh, to introduce uh, what, you're, uh, what you're doing here. Uh, yeah, well, it's it's wonderful to join you guys, and uh, like I said, it it's hopefully a, a foretaste of some uh, things to come. Um, so I've just uh, accepted a position with Ezra as the uh, executive director in Canada, and so I'm going to be starting that in uh, the middle of July, uh, 2023, and uh, it's exciting. I so I'll be able to work alongside you guys, um, Joe, obviously in the UK, uh, Bart DeVries down in the US, and. Uh, I'll be able to uh, have an eye on the the unique cultural context here in Canada and uh, work to expand the vision and mission of Ezra here in Canada. And I'm excited about it. I've been uh, following the Ezra Institute for a long time. I remember when I first read Mission of God, it sort of revolutionized my church ministry. And uh, I got really uh, excited about everything that the Institute was doing. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm a, a product of the ministry of Ezra. And uh, and so the opportunity to come alongside and, and be a part of the ministry from within is uh, really, really exciting to me. That's excellent. Yeah, yeah I was, uh, I was just thinking about that, that uh, you were you know, one of the uh, one of the earliest uh, pastors and churches to sort of reach out and uh, and say we appreciate and love what you're doing, and uh, and then come alongside us. So this is uh, it. Really is a and there's been a a good good friendship, good relationship that's uh, developed over the years, and we're this is really just a natural extension of uh, of that already. So yeah, again, very pleased to uh, to have you with us. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I I remember at the time I was uh, I was kind of trained in pastoral ministry uh, by a guy who uh, was at his church for about thirty years, and he really uh, kind of got my theology in order. I was coming out of uh, uh, being a youth pastor in the Pentecostal church, and so Mike took me under his wing and and taught me to read old Puritans and reformers and and uh, Dutch theologians, and uh, and so he really got my theology in order. 
and uh, after I got to Crossroads, which is uh, the church that I've been pastoring at for 10 years, when I've been here for a couple of years, Mike actually passed away of cancer. And so I found myself sort of without that mentor, without that older pastor that I could call whenever I needed uh, some pastoral advice as a young guy in ministry. And uh, I remember that summer after he passed away, I took the mission of God on uh, vacation with me and uh, I, I digested it in, in a very quick order. And I, I kept thinking to myself, like, where, where, why have I not heard of this? And, uh, and of course I turned the, the book over and see Joe boot. And so I, I look up where he is and turns out we're both in Southwestern Ontario of all places. You could have read a book from anybody all across. And, and so it just, you know, I was, I was certainly in need of, uh, of, uh, some continued direction as a young minister. And, uh, so it, the the relationship to Joe and uh, kind of being influenced by his work came at such a, a perfect time for me. And uh, and as a young guy in ministry trying to figure out what uh, leading a church and uh, casting vision within a church looked like, the mission of God really gave me some handles for some things that had been bobbing around in my head because I had read some Bonson and and read some Kuiper and and read a lot of the Puritans. And, uh, and, and in reading a lot of the Puritans, the idea that, you know, their theology had been kind of reclaimed and, uh, and yet we'd, we'd missed their missiology. And, uh, and so then kind of directing our church and, and sort of centering our church around, uh, the recovered missiology of, uh, of that time period, um, has been incredibly fruitful here. And so uh, I'm just excited to to help more churches grasp that and uh, and see what uh, see what we can do here in Canada. Yeah. Well, that's it. well, we're uh, we're really excited about it, and um, you know, this really actually today is our first public announcement of uh, the appointment of of Nathan Wright, Nathaniel, actually, um, mm. uh, to. Uh, to the role of uh, a Canadian director for the Ezra Institute. And um, it's, uh, it's something that we've been working on behind the scenes, of course, for, for, for some months with, uh, with Nathan. Um, but uh, the, the board and the, the, the leadership team are very excited about it. We're thrilled. We think uh, Nate is the right guy, uh, the right man to uh, help us carry the mandate and the mission forward in Canada. And we also want this to signal to uh, Canadians, uh, to the Canadian churches, to our Canadian friends and supporters and prayer warriors and donors that uh, the Ezra Institute remains 100% committed to Canada. Uh, with the expansion of the ministry that uh, Nate alluded to into the United States, where we've got an office there in Tennessee, and into the United Kingdom, so effectively a presence in Europe now as well. Um, we wanted to make sure that uh, our uh, our Canadian base, and it really is the founding base, uh, understands that um, our commitment to Canada is not only undiminished, we intend to expand and grow uh, our reach and what we're doing and the influence we want to have there. So the fact that we've got uh, Nate on the leadership team now, uh, we consider a huge, huge blessing and a huge boon. We we can't wait for him to get started uh, next month and to see how the Lord is going to grow and develop and shape Nate's ministry as well uh, in Canada. And so we would ask all of our um, friends and uh, listeners and uh, 
the friends of the ministry really uh, around the world, not just in Canada, but uh, uh, across the globe, wherever they're listening to pray for us and to pray for Nate and Colleen and his family um, as they take take up this uh, new challenge uh, of, uh, of guiding the ministry forward in the in the Canadian landscape, because we do believe that uh, many exciting uh, and important things lie ahead for Ezra in Canada. And it's a blessing for me personally, not only because of the, the privilege that I've had of playing some small part in uh, shaping uh, Nate's own ministry, but uh, to have uh, others on the team now who are sharing some of the load, picking up some of the log, uh, is uh, is a big uh, is a big blessing. So, uh, an official welcome uh, to, to to Nate Wright, and uh, we uh, we look forward to uh, what's ahead, and uh, a call to all of uh, all of our friends to pray for us and to pray for him especially. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, it. It's just it's just reminding all of the uh, the Ezra supporters that uh, Ezra has always been an organization about world domination, right? Um, <laughs> it's only now being realized as you've as you've expanded to the UK and into the states. It's always it's always been in the books. It's always been in the plans, but it's only now coming to fruition. That's right. <laughs> They're on to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm sorry, Joe, if that shows up in a CBC article some at some point. <laughs> yes, sorry, sorry, Ryan. Go ahead. You were saying. Oh, I was just saying we've uh, just cracked the seal on the uh, the confidential phase two folder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, number two, part two. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, it's uh, it's exciting times though. I'm I'm really thrilled to be on board, and uh, and Ryan and I have been uh, friends for a long time. I think the first time that we met, we were able to speak at a conference together uh, in the Waterloo region, and uh, and so we've done lots That's of right. podcasts together, yeah. and uh, um, shared lots of our, our our families have a lot in common. We've talked a lot about homeschooling and and all the stuff that our families are into. So I'm looking forward to working alongside. Ryan as well, and uh, looking forward to being part of the international team with uh, with Bart and Joe. So they're exciting times. Oh yeah, no, we're uh, just warming up. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, That's now right. that uh, now that we're sufficiently warmed up, let's uh, let's dive into this uh, this week's episode. So if uh, if you'll remember from uh, from last week, we uh, we finished off with part of a question about uh, how Old Covenant believers, uh, God's people before uh, the uh, incarnation, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, how they obeyed the law, uh, if not for the Spirit. And part of the, uh, part of the rationale behind the question, uh, this, uh, this listener goes on to say that uh, his, his family actually lost uh, an eight-year-old boy to cancer last year. And uh, this uh, this man, this father, is convinced that uh, that his son was a believer uh, based on his testimony, based on his conduct and his attitude. And he's asking partly because he wants to be able to provide guidance to his family on what uh, what the death of believers means, uh, what uh, what this this boy uh, is or is not experiencing. Uh, Based on scripture, what do what do we know about this state of uh, of those who fall asleep in the Lord before the second coming? 
the Joe, uh, you you had started to uh, to deal with this question last week. I'll let you uh, uh, pick it up from there. And uh, if Nate's got any uh, any pastoral insight, I'll uh, I'll have you uh, step in as well. Well, obviously, the first thing to to note for a family who's been through this sort of situation is that there is a uniquely pastoral character to these kinds mm. of uh, questions that need to be uh, paid attention to. And my conviction as a covenant theologian is that uh, the the children of uh, believers, these little ones, uh, are in the Lord's hands. The promise is for you and your children and all those whom the Lord our God shall call. So I think we can have um, a, a strong confidence as, as God's people that our children in their infancy and in these young years, uh, that the Lord has his covenant hand upon them. That's the first thing. The second thing, though, which is, I think, the heart of the question, concerns the intermediate state. And that is one which I think uh, Christians are often a little bit muddled about. Uh, I think sometimes we have allowed the uh, the Greek philosophical context of the Western tradition to excessively influence our understanding of this. Um, when we did our uh, series on Thomism, uh, we talked a bit about the way in which the Western tradition tried to bring Aristotle very much into the center of, uh, well, basically the philosophical resourcement for uh, Christian theology. The kind of prolegomena was a was a uh, Aristotelian framework. And the Greeks, to varying degrees, uh, believed in uh, two substances of body and soul. For Aristotle, the soul was the form of the body, the substantial form of the body. And as this then comes through, of course, Plato had an even more uh, emphatic distinction between body and soul. He viewed the the body really as almost like a, a, just a vehicle. The, the, the soul was the, was the driver in the car almost. Um, Aristotle's view is a little bit more integrated. But nonetheless, the notion that you can easily uh, distinguish and separate out these substantial form of the soul and then the 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 body as it comes through and is sort of christianized uh results in a in a in a sort of uncomfortable assemblage of two parts uh, a material body and an immortal rational soul substance uh as we encounter it in much of the western tradition and that owes a lot more to greek philosophy than it does actually to the bible yeah. uh for the greeks the uh, the 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 body was really an encumbrance, and if they thought about a fall at all, it was the fall of immortal souls into material bodies, and to die to escape the body was blessed release. It was uh, it was a, in a certain sense a higher state. They they believed in uh, the nobility of suicide. Uh, you you went into an Elysium. Um, a kind of um, vague Greek heaven concept in a disembodied state. And the ideal, even for the uh, philosophers, was a kind of contemplation, an intellectual contemplation of souls on ideas and ideals. So that, as it sort of came through into the Christian tradition, 
kind of loaded the way we have tended to read the Bible about the human person, which in, in Scripture is actually a unity, uh, not uh, easily uh, divisible, um, and that human life, Christ is incarnate as a fully man, and he's raised to life, not merely as a soul or disembodied rational soul substance, but as a human being. Um, and the goal of, it's very important for us to remember that as Christians, the goal of redemption, the goal of the Christian life is resurrection, not disembodiment. Uh, so the the actual um, ultimate state that we're, that we're headed towards, Christ is the firstborn from the dead. That tells us something very important. He's the firstborn from the dead. Now, when we go to funerals as Christians, uh, sometimes, not always, and of course we need to be sympathetic, we know what they mean, but you sometimes you'll pick up that funeral service sheet as you go in, and it'll say on the service sheet, the, there'll be a picture of the person, the beloved one who's gone, and it'll say, so-and-so went to their reward on such-and-such such a date. But actually the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say they went to their reward. Um, the rewards are handed out at the consummation, at the end of all things, and uh, it's very clear from Hebrews 11.40 that even the, the saints of old, the patriarchs, Moses, Elijah, the, the prophets, the, all those that we um, think of as the great saints of old uh, have not all been made perfect yet because the scripture is, mm -hmm. is very clear that we're going to make, they're not going to be made perfect without us. It's together that we experience the, 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 the resurrection of the living and the dead the Bible says. So very quickly, and I'll let uh, uh, let Nate jump in, let me just highlight a couple of thoughts here, because it is um, important that in view of that backdrop, we think about this in a really scriptural way. First of all, we can say, I think, that this is God's mystery, that the intermediate state that is God's mystery. The Bible is almost entirely silent on it. And I think uh, the Roman Catholic Church where uh, begins to speculate on this, and you see where it ends up with doctrines like purgatory and, and, and souls being sprung from purgatory with coins ringing in the coffers and so on and so forth. And we've got all of these bizarre speculations about the intermediate state. And that's where philosophical rationalistic speculation will get you when you don't uh, pay careful attention to scripture. So... Let's first say that the intermediate state is God's secret. We do read in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, that absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. It doesn't say anything else. It just says that if we are, you know, there is, the Paul tells us, an inner man and an outer man. So when we talk about the unity of the human person, we do recognize that we are more than a material entity. There is a part of us you can see and touch as part of us you can't see and touch or an aspect of us perhaps part is not the best term an aspect of our being that you cannot see and taste and touch an inner man and an outer man and so we are assured that if we are absent from the body we are present with the lord now it's it's important to realize in colossians 3 3 that paul says you have died you've already died and your life is hid together with Christ in God. So as a believer, I'm actually already seated with Christ in, in an important sense in heavenly places. I have died, died to sin and self, 
and my life is hid together with Christ in God. So in the Christian view, death is a terrible and terrifying judgment, especially upon the unbeliever. It's a curse. In fact, Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15 as the last enemy to be defeated. Death is not a friend. Jesus did not show up at Lazarus's grave, pop champagne glasses and throw a party and say he's gone to a better place. He actually wept because the wages of sin is death. He was the, the Greek text actually says he was angry in his spirit and he wept. And that's appropriate. When we lose a loved one, when we when we lose somebody dear to us, weeping is the appropriate response. But Paul tells us we are not those who grieve without hope because of the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. We're, we're not without hope because we know that absent from the body, we are secure in Jesus Christ. Now, the image that the New Testament most often uses for um, the reality of the Christian being in Christ, even in physical death, is falling asleep. So remember when he's going to raise Lazarus, um, uh, he 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 said he tells them for, uh, first of all that um, uh, Lazarus is uh, Lazarus that he hears Lazarus is sick. Then he tells them that Lazarus has fallen asleep, and then he says he tells them plainly, "Look, he's dead. Lazarus is dead." But he describes it first as falling asleep. The same is true of Jairus' daughter. Remember when the the Jairus' daughter, uh, the 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 servants come to find the Lord Jesus, and then they they find Jairus and say, don't bother the teacher anymore. Uh, she's died. And Jesus says, uh, don't be afraid, only believe. And he arrives and he says, she, she, she's, she's sleeping. And Jesus goes in and he raises her from the dead. And then again, in first Corinthians, uh, 11 30, Paul talks about the fact that those who've been abusing the Lord's table, misusing the table of the Lord, uh, he says, some of you ha are sick and some of you have, have even fallen asleep um, because of their abuse of the covenant meal. Now, really, I think what that's telling us is that we are at rest in the Lord. I'm not advocating some kind of Greek conception of soul sleep. What I'm saying is, is that the, we're told the believer is resting in the Lord. Um, and that's basically all we are told. I think speculations about, you know, um, disembodied beings, you know, observing what's going down on earth and having chit chats about what Uncle Bert is doing and this kind of thing. This is all um, uh, speculative. Uh, what uh, what Jesus does say to, interestingly, to the Pharisees in Mark 12, 27, when they're arguing about when, you know, the Sadducees, I should say, don't believe in the resurrection, you'll recall. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And they try and put Jesus a, tr uh, a trick question uh, to him. And they say, well, you know, in terms of um, leveret marriage law, um, they ask him, well, you know, if a man has his wife's died and so he's he's married again and married again, and she's died, married again, so on and so forth. Well, in the resurrection, whose wife uh, is um, is uh, she going? She, sorry, she going to be and. Um, there he talks about uh, the the fact that um, we will we will be uh, in the in the resurrection. 
um, we will be like the angels. Marriage won't look like it looks now. In another instance, Jesus is tested on the question uh, about, um, well, Jesus talks about Abraham, um, the God, uh, the God being actually it might be the same incident I could be referring to here. Um, but at any rate, people will recognize the quotation. I'm going from memory. But uh, he's he's he he says that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he is the God not of the dead, but of the living. So he's saying Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not dead in the way that the the Sadducees think of death, in the way that unbelief thinks of death. They are resting in the bosom of Abraham. So the image the Bible gives to us is one of rest of peace, of sleep in the Lord. Now, if you push me into a corner and say, Joe, exactly what do you mean by that? Well, um, I, I, I want to resist uh, unnecessary speculation, but I would say if you're asking me my personal conviction, which could be wrong, I think that my rest in the Lord is very much like when you go to bed at night and you close your eyes and you fall asleep, You've got no real conception of the passage of time. You've got no real sense of uh, uh, of what's going uh, of going on around you beyond your dream, which hopefully is a peaceful and restful dream. And you open your eyes in the resurrection of a new day. And um, my conviction is that uh, we close our eyes in death and we rest in the Lord and we open them in the resurrection. Um, and they seem almost contemporaneous to us. Now, that could be wrong. Um but uh, I'm saying that that seems to me the preponderance of biblical evidence is that we are at rest in the Lord, and therefore we can have joy, peace, confidence, hope. And then the firstborn from the dead, who is Christ, he's the firstborn of many brothers. We follow him out of the grave. And uh, I think that um, hopefully is, uh, in, a, in a nutshell, a reasonably rounded answer. But I'm sure Nate might have some things, especially pastorally, to add to that. I don't know. Yeah, I, would, I I agree with uh, not only your your summary of the text there, Joe, but also uh, sort of your speculation. I would land in a similar spot if if pressed. I think we have to remember that scripture, um, you know, uh, Deuteronomy thirty two reminds us that uh, everything that God has revealed is for us and for our children. But there are mysteries that uh, He has not revealed, and they're for Him. And uh, and so He He kind of gives us we we see like through a mirror darkly. We don't we don't see. Uh, with an exact sort of understanding, we we can exegete, you know, uh, the scriptures and and understand everything that we need to know about the gospel in terms of penal substitutionary atonement and all these theological uh, wonders. But there are things that he doesn't allow us to see completely, and he doesn't give us a clear picture of what some of these things look like. Um, I think uh, pastorally to the the person who submitted the question, I would say, interestingly, the story of Jairus's daughter, um, she's 12 years old at the time, and Jesus describes her as simply sleeping. And uh, and I think it's uh, 2 Samuel 12 when um, uh, David loses his son that he had had with Bathsheba. And uh, it's interesting, if you read that story, David is, is mourning, he is beside himself, he's inconsolable. And then once the son dies, he actually suddenly looks, you know, put together again. And they sort of ask him, like, well, well what was this? When, the son, when your son was just 
sick. You were, you looked distraught and yet here you are and, and uh, you're no longer mourning. And he says, well, now I know that I'll be one day reunited with him, right? He was, he was um, mm-hmm. coming to the mm-hmm. Lord in supplication, asking for his son to be healed and live. But once his son died, he knows that he'll be reunited with him. And so pastorally, I think that story is there partially for us as pastors to be able to give uh, people who lose young loved ones. And I've had to counsel more than um, more than one couple who have lost children in infancy, both through miscarriages and through accidents and things like that. And, um, and I think those kinds of stories are in the Bible to remind us that God's grace mm-hmm. is sufficient to reach through and, uh, and grab all of those who he's uh, predestined to be his. So um, I would be comforted by that story. And it's there, I think, exactly for these kinds of times uh, to assure family members that they can uh, be reunited with young, young loved ones that, that, uh, that die in infancy. Um, in terms of, uh, I think it's, it's interesting. I think a lot of Christians, we get our theology from um, Philly cheese commercials uh, about heaven more mm-hmm. so than from the Bible, right? We have that sort of ethereal picture of, uh, you know, all of us with wings sitting on clouds. And it's no wonder that young people grow up um, kind of uh, terrified of the idea of eternity because you have young men who love sports and wrestling, you know, and, uh, and t- horseback riding and, and, you know, chopping wood and doing whatever uh, young men do. And the idea of, of sort of existing on a cloud and the only tangible thing that you have to touch is a harp and maybe a bagel that you can spread your Philly cheese uh, on, um, I think is, is a terrifying one to people. And I think it's because we can't, we can't um, picture an ethereal existence. And it's partially because we're not meant to, we are material and immaterial joined together is what makes us human. It's a Gnostic heresy for us to desire to escape the physical body that God has given to us and breathe life into. And so um, I think that, uh, one of the places I like to go is, and 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 so there's misunderstandings sometimes fuel that that anxiety as well. So we think about Jesus after the resurrection showing up in a locked room, and we picture him like a ghost, and yet he he it, you know he comes in and and he asks for something to eat, and he has the disciples touch him. And so there is a physical physicality to Jesus. And one of the things I like to say, and this is speculation, but uh, I, it's, you know, there's two ways to go through a wall, right? Either you're a ghost mm-hmm. and the wall is solid or the wall is a ghost and you're solid. And if you read much C.S. Lewis, um, he, he describes hell and um, the, the final state for those who are outside of Christ as a sort of wispy and ethereal existence, whereas heaven is actually hearty. It's, it's more tangible. It's more solid than, than earth. And mm-hmm. I think that if we think about it that way, then um, we, don't, uh, we, we don't have that sort of anxiety about a, a, an ethereal existence. But we also have to remember that heaven isn't the home that we are created for, right? So whatever is, is going on, in the throne room right now, it is comforting to know that there is a human being seated at the right hand of the father, right? Sometimes we don't think about that, that Jesus Christ is a human being forever. The incarnation was him becoming human. And there's a human being seated at the right hand of the father, but that's not our home, right? This earth is our home. And so whatever the intermediary state looks like, even if there is um, those who are cognizant in heaven right now, they are certainly not looking down on us. 
and that is an intermediary state. Um, there's actually a great book that I would recommend to people. It's a little bit, uh, it's, it, it's speculative, as Joe said, you know, that we're speculating about some of this stuff, but it's a, it's a book called A Journey Out of Time by Arthur Custance. And he talks about this a little bit, this idea that because God exists outside of time, he's not on a timeline like we are, when we die, because we are slaves to time, we're sort of plucked off of the timeline right? And we're brought to where God is. And if God exists outside of time, there's a, there's a fascinating passage in the book of Revelation where it says that, uh, you know, talking about the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And it's because Christ, uh, God looks at, you know, the unfolding of history as the one who's standing outside of time. And so he sees the end from the beginning. And so when we die on the timeline, those of us who are in Christ are sort of plucked off the timeline and brought to him. And so just as, as Joe described, we close our eyes on the timeline and we open them to the great consummation at the end where um, all things are, are being made new. So um, that's, that's Arthur Custance. I think he does a great job in that book, A Journey Through Time or a journey out of time rather, um, speculating about some of those things, but it is speculation. But I think what we are to know and we, what we ought to know, first of all, for this listener is that scripture gives us lots of assurance that we will be reunited with loved ones who die in infancy, who die young. And, uh, and that's because of the character and the nature of, of the covenant God that we, we serve, who, who deals with us covenantally and deals with families covenantally. But then on top of that, um, to know that um, our eternal existence is not an ethereal one. You are not destined for the clouds. You, are, you do not become an angel. Um, you are a human being and you'll be resurrected as such. First uh, Corinthians 15 makes that clear. There are different kinds of seeds um, and different kinds of seeds grow into different kinds of plants. And so you are a human seed that's planted and you, that means you resurrect as a human as well. Um, but it's tangible, it's physical, and this earth is our final home. It's, it's re rejoined together with the heavenlies, but it is this, this earth. Yeah. And Romans eight is, uh, is clear about that. Of course, that, um, the, uh, the, the destiny of creation itself is tied to, our inheritance, uh, the redemption of our bodies, and creation is groaning, waiting for that moment of our inheritance and our, our resurrection life. And um, the reminder that the New Jerusalem, as Nate has pointed out there, we often think of, you know, heaven is our home. Actually, no, that, that heaven isn't our mm-hmm. home. The New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven into the earth in the eschaton. And so, and then the dwelling place of God is with men. So the reality of the of the of the of the recreation is that fully embodied. I think it's the great divorce where C.S. Lewis discusses what Nate said there about uh, really... being more solid in the real world, uh, which is an interesting uh, an interesting speculation there. But that but that that that's the the sense you get from Scripture. Very very quickly, I just wanted to go to I I did um, mention Mark twelve, um, and it is the it is that passage where Jesus is talking about marriage. And, and then he, he talks about um, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And uh, he says, are you, not, uh, are you not deceived because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? I mean, this is the, 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 the problem. Uh, for when they rise from the dead, this is about the, who's, who's, uh, the question about whose wife will she be. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. That is, they don't marry, not that they've got wings and fly around. 
Now concerning um, the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush how God spoke to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the, of the living. You are badly deceived. So you've got the importance there of resurrection and the reality that our life is hidden in God, in, in Christ. Uh, he's the God of the living, not the dead. Now, very, very quickly, the one passage that people most often go to to try and refute this, what we've been saying here, is they cite the man on the cross uh, uh, next to Jesus, the criminal on the cross next to Jesus. There's two uh, crucified next to him, you will recall. And um, one who has defended the Lord uh, says... Um, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Now, that's very important because there in the text, the kingdom um, is synonymous with what Jesus says then about paradise, right? So because Eden, earth, Eden was paradise. That's what the Bible went back. The Bible speaks of paradise. It means uh, a, 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 a purified, unsin-tainted world. Uh, and so he says, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom, when you come in the fullness of your reign, basically. And Jesus says, I assure you today, or depending on how you where you put the punctuation, because it's not there in the in the Greek. So uh, he may have said very, verily, um, uh, I assure you this day. You will be with me in paradise or um, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, the, the, most people read that. And again, what they read off the text there is I'll see you in heaven in a minute. That is not what Jesus is saying. Um, what, because in fact, Jesus didn't go to heaven at that point. Remember where after the resurrection, the women are holding on to uh, Mary's holding on to, to Jesus. And he says, don't hold on to me. I've not yet gone to my father. Mm -hmm. uh, Christ has not ascended into the ascension happens weeks later. He's not gone to heaven. Um, so the notion that he's saying to the thief on the cross, I'll see you in heaven in a minute, which is the way people often read this off is a total misunderstanding of the text. What he's saying to the thief on the cross is concerning the kingdom. Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in the restored earth, the restored paradise of God. And in fact, that at that very moment, you remember when Christ died, at that moment, the earth shook, the temple curtain was rent in two, providing access to the presence of God, which remember, there with the cherubim over the mercy seat was a symbol of Eden. And the, 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 the curtain between the presence of God and, and, and man the outer court was a symbol of our being driven out of Eden. So the temple was a copy of Eden in many respects. The temple curtain is rent in two. Here you now have access to the presence of God because of what Christ has done. And then it says that the, the many got out of their graves and they walked around in Jerusalem and were seen by many. So what Jesus was saying to the thief on the cross was today your passport and everybody who is in Christ for the future has been stamped citizen of the kingdom, passport approved. You will be with me in 
the kingdom in the paradise of God. And today, that very thing has been accomplished because of what, and he says, it is tetelestai, it is finished, it is all accomplished. So what he said to the thief was true. It's now accomplished. Your passport is stamped for the kingdom of God. He was not saying, don't worry, we'll be in heaven in a moment. Um, So it's important, again, that we read the text properly in view of the rest of Scripture and not read off a sort of Greek neo-Gnostic version of of heaven. Um, So that that text is not a defeater text for what we've been saying here. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. That's good. All right. Well, thanks to uh, both of you. I think we've uh, dealt with uh, dealt with that fairly thoroughly. That was a uh, that was a great set of responses. I'd like to uh, move us along. Uh, Nate, I already mentioned, was on this this show on the Ten Commandments series, talking about theft, and we spent, uh, funny enough, we spent most of our time talking about uh, taxation and how to. Uh, how to avoid that, that how to uh, <laughs> how to respond to that and how to uh, what sort of what uh, what structures and uh, mindsets and cultural civilizational changes we ought to be working for to uh, to reduce that uh, the the tax burden on individuals and uh, consequently the the size and scope of the government uh, one of the uh, one of the immediate questions that uh, that we didn't deal with, but that somebody picked up on, is to uh, just to push back on that. And the question is: Is it uh, is it not true that uh, the state is only stepping in in terms of uh, welfare because the church initially failed in its mandate to care for widows, orphans, and the poor? Uh, and that's uh, so. It, it was the church's uh, absenting itself from that responsibility that. Uh, that provided the opportunity for the state to uh, to step in, and this uh, it's not stated, but I guess if that's so, uh, where and when and how did that happen, and what's the uh, what's the response now? Uh, this things being as they are. Yeah, um, it's a good it's a great question, and uh, I first of all let me do a little bit of uh, kind of theological sleight of hand because the first thing i'd like to say is that even if that's a hundred percent true and the church failed in its mandate to care for the orphans and widows and therefore the the civil state took up um, the responsibility of welfare um, what we're talking about then is um is is what is not what ought to be because mm-hmm. if if the scriptures clearly say, and I think that they do, that it is the primary responsibility of the church to care for the or- orphans and the widows, for the church to be a source of charity and welfare, um, we need not look further than the, the book of Ruth to see what it looks like when godly business owners like Boaz follow God's law and are a source of welfare for the community when Ruth would go then and glean in the fields. Um, you know, there, there's a beautiful picture of what it would, could look like if good and godly and ambitious uh, Christian business owners 
um, tried to figure out what that sort of thing looks like in our modern culture to be able to care for the orphans and the widows and the uh, those who are destitute. So I would say that even if it's 100% true that the church abdicated its role and the state had to step in because of the failures of the church, that doesn't tell us what ought to be. That just tells us what is. And I would say that we, it, we still ought to go to the scriptures to see what ought to be. Second thing I would say is that just because um, even if that happened, historically speaking, and the state stepped in and started doing a better job than the church, I would say if you look at the welfare state around you, um, is the state still doing a good job, even if they had at one time? And I think we could all agree that they are not. And part of the thing that I would simply say is that the state doesn't have the tools to be able to deal with poverty in a just way. Um, if you look at if you look at how the state uh, runs its the uh, welfare, the way it uh, it gives out uh, charity and, and help to those who are in need, what it's created is cyclical poverty, um, generational poverty, and uh, and apart from you know a, a few uh, um, stories that turn into uh, bestsellers, um, families that uh, that dip into uh, really destructive poverty, those families never get out of it. And so, uh, it, but if you look back at God's law and you look at things like Jubilee law and you look at all these sorts of things, it's actually impossible for families to continue to live in poverty um, because of the sins and the missteps and the financial ruin of their fathers and grandfathers. So, um, so only the church actually is equipped with God's law, which allows them to actually justly take care of um, orphans and widows and those who are um, uh, those who are in need. But the other thing that I would say is that I don't think that it's true that the state stepped in uh, in order to take something from the church that had been done poorly. Um, I think that as the as we saw a gradual decline in the Christianization of the West, we saw a state that um, didn't want the church to continue to uh, be doing all of these uh, um, social duties. Like if you look at every, almost every hospital that you find is named after a saint. Why? Because it was the church that started them. Healthcare, welfare, uh, education, um, all of these things were the responsibility of the church. The state took them not because the church wasn't doing a good job, the state took them because they didn't want the church to be have a monopoly on these things. They felt like they were better in the hands of good, godly politicians. And I, I, I would have used air quotes or scare quotes on good and godly politicians um, if uh, if this was a, a physical conversation. So I think that uh, I think that though, uh, however you might understand the history of how it happened. God's word still has to be our primary foundation for where God has delegated his authority. And I think it's very clear scripturally that he's delegated the responsibility for healthcare, welfare, and education to the church and to the families that comprise it, not to the civil authorities. Mm -hmm. No, I totally agree. Joe, do you have anything that you want to uh, add on there? Yeah, just briefly, I think, first of all, as Nate rightly said, you know, just because uh, something is doesn't mean it should be. Now, just in terms of the the detail of the question itself, it simply isn't true that the church and the private sector were not doing uh, a good job in the area of welfare. If you look back at um, 19th century Britain, the Victorian age, especially the late Victorian age, there has never been probably in the history of the world 
such an incredible outpouring of voluntary charity organizations, um, charitable organizations, uh, private organizations, church structures and organizations that were engaged in um, both education, charitable welfare, and serving the needs of the poor. Most of the, and actually it went beyond that too. It included the the animal welfare because many of the mm-hmm. animal welfare organizations were also begun by evangelicals and Christians during the Victorian period. Uh, some of the most famous ones like Royal Society for the Protection of Animals and so on. So uh, the Humane Society in Toronto was was started by Christians. So the yeah. it, it isn't true. It's a myth that the the, the church, uh, charity, and private organisations were not doing a good job of uh, caring for the needs of uh, the poor. Now, it was of course the case that um, just as it still remains true, charity is not indiscriminate. Uh, and one of the things that the private, the church uh, and the private sector is able to do, the charitable organizations and the church are able to do, is direct the charity to those who are taking some kind of responsibility, uh, to who are um, seeking to, uh, who are what we might call, let's say, the deserving poor, that is, those who are genuinely in a state of need, and aren't simply, as the Apostle Paul talks about, um, if a man is not willing to work, uh, he shouldn't eat. Um, if, if a man does not take care of his own, Paul says, he is denied the faith and is worse than an infidel, especially those of his own household. So if, if the, the state, um, when it becomes basically a welfare bureaucracy, loses the ability to, doesn't have the ability to discern uh, who should be the recipients of charity. This is why charity historically was personal and it was effective. Um, the, the, the reality is that if you are unwilling to work and you're capable of working uh, and uh, you just, just simply despise work or are utterly irresponsible and you fold your arms, then you deserve the poverty that you're in and it's not somebody else's responsibility to pull you out of it. Um, and I know that sounds harsh to modern ears, um, but the reality is that's the truth. Now, uh, the church and charitable organizations were there to say, who has fallen on difficult times? Who has fallen on hard times? Who is struggling? How can we give them short-term assistance and help? How can we provide longer-term assistance for orphans and widows who actually need it? Who, the reason widows is because they don't have a husband. They don't have a, somebody who is providing Orphans, widows and orphans is a picture of those who are helpless, not able-bodied men with three dogs and uh, you know and, and a welfare check on universal basic incomes standing by the side of the road because they want to take drugs and drink. Um, the the reality is is that poverty comes on will come on those who are able but not willing to work. Now, what the welfare state has tried to do, and so the, 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 the thesis that the, 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 the Christian private charity in the church failed is a myth. What was going on in the late 19th century was these utopian rationalistic documents were being drawn up of a huge welfare state. And there were all kinds of uh, proposals that seemed in the 19th century utterly fanciful, but the uh, the early part of the 20th century, World War One and World War Two 
the opportunity presented itself for these Fabian socialists and welfare ideologues to create their uh, idea of a utopian society, uh, which looked to the state, not to the church, not to private enterprise, not to private charity, not to charitable giving, but looked to the state and its coercive arm, which is where this ties in with your theme when you last spoke to Nate of theft, uh, of uh, progressive taxation, of confiscatory taxation for the purposes of redistribution, and asset stripping the provident, asset stripping the family, and giving it out to those who, in many instances, simply do not want to work or will not work. We're not talking about those who want to work and can't find a job, those who have fallen on hard times, etc., but those who are sponges of the good graces and the hard work of others. And unfortunately, as Nate alluded to, uh, in much of the West today, certainly here in Britain, we have third and fourth generation welfare claimers who've never had a job. Three or four generations of men who've never had a job. Now, that is, in, that is enabling evil. When you have a welfare state that supports a system like that, and this is what we've got in Canada now with universal basic income. There's conversations about that in uh, in the UK as well. It's not here yet, but uh, uh, these ideas are being promoted, is that you then uh, actually sponsor idleness and evil. Uh, and uh, there's nothing worse than unemployed idle hands. Um, yeah. That's dangerous. It's dangerous for our society. We're dealing with an absolute epidemic in the United Kingdom of knife crime that is absolutely everywhere. And very often, it's uh, if it's not terror-related, it's idle, unemployed youths uh, who are living off the welfare state, and they don't have fathers. So we've got what, what basically brought us to the situation that we're in was with World War I and II, we had uh, the basically the state saying we need these short-term measures of taxation and so on uh, to deal with the war. But when the Second World War ended, um, it was World War I that began the asset grabs and the stripping of the family through taxation. But World War II, the, the massive expansion after World War II of the welfare state, lots of these taxes that were said to be temporary war measures were retained. And so the state steps in and for the last basically 60 or 70 years has tried to push aside, as uh, Nate pointed out, the role of the church, the role of private charity, to say that it's going to realize social justice uh, by confiscatory taxation, by taking from the haves and giving it to the have-nots. And of course, what's happened to charity is that it's nosedived. Real charity is nosedived. People think it's the state's responsibility. Why should I give to charity if the state is doing it and taking 40% plus of my income uh, to, to have this vast bureaucracy? And look, it's dying, again, as Nate said, 60, 70 years in, this experiment is coming to a conclusion. The, the, the welfare states of Europe mm. are bankrupt. Uh, and uh, the time of cheap money is over. The, the endless quantitative easing, the printing of money, which, by the way, is theft because it devalues people's savings. So that is state theft for the purposes of uh, um, redistribution, uh, where they constantly print money 
into the uh, into the economy, keep money as cheap as uh, uh, as possible, which eventually leads to inflation, which makes money then very expensive, uh, and the welfare state uh, is collapsing and crumbling around us. And the biggest cost to the welfare state, unequivocally, indisputably, is the collapse of the family, because the family in the Bible is the number one welfare institution. It provides for children, Mm -hmm. provides for the elderly, provides care for parents, and so on and so forth. The extended family uh, was the welfare institution that was uh, aided and served by the church and private charities. That's been taken over by the state, and it costs billions, billions. Though the collapse of Christianity in the Christian worldview is now costing billions. And uh, the, the days of that welfare largesse are numbered now um, in the West, and we desperately need a return to Christian charity because the notion of social justice, when the state leaves its purview and jurisdiction of being a ministry of justice and tries to become a ministry of love and of charity, uh, then what it does is it institutes what it what it calls social justice, which is that everybody's Uh, outcomes must look the same. The outcomes Mm. of people's lives must look the same. You cannot have inequality. But the Bible and God's law doesn't aim at inequality because inequality of height, stature, gifts, proclivities, all of these things cannot be removed from humanity. It's the unity and diversity that makes human life worth living. But if you then determine to create social justice, because as a ministry of justice, that's what it does. It thinks, well, you've got to have equality, uh, not just now before the law in terms of uh, justice in the courts, but you must now have an equality of outcomes in society. And that's when you get the radical utopian theft uh, that's done in, in the name of social justice by the state. It's It's interesting to note that I think um, so you talked about the decline of the family or the stripping away of the power of the family, which increases the need for and the, the power and the influence of the state. When you look at, at the biblical paradigm, what you see, especially as you as you look through the Old Testament, is that God was building his kingdom through godly patriarchs, right? So you had these men of great influence, of great wealth, of great power, and 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 their their lives sort of had this gravity to it where those who came in contact with them and i think I, I'll, I'll just go back to, again to the book of ruth you look at boaz and you look at a man like that and all of those who were under his employ all those who were in his household all of those who benefited from his wealth and and really that was that was what the the west was built on was this idea that individual uh freedom freedom for individuals to gain that sort of wealth that, again, built on the bedrock of the the Christian uh, foundation is that those who would rise to the top would be those that God blesses their obedience. And therefore, you know, the gravity around them, all of those who come come in contact them with them would be blessed. But the more bureaucracy that's added and the more um, restrictions that the government imposes upon individual business owners, individual families, 
uh, the more it strips down that godly patriarchy that society was built upon. And so the only patriarch left, right, is the is the state. And so the state becomes the father of all. And uh, mm-hmm. the state does not have the gravitas of a godly patriarch. And so society falls apart because the the um, the the, the it's number one because it's not the design of God, but also because those who are um, in those positions are, don't have the godly character to sustain them. Yeah, and it's interesting. It's also worth noting. You might you talked about inequality, and I think what God's law does is creates equality of opportunity, not equality of outcomes. Outcome, that's correct. And, and what yeah. what the modern progressive liberal policy looks to do is make all outcomes equal and so this would be like if you're playing a football game what you want in terms of equality is for holding to be holding on both sides right false start to be a false start on both sides what's pass interference for one team is pass interference for the other team that's what equality looks like but the equality they're shooting for is that the the score always needs to end 30 30 and the only way you can do that is with a whole lot of lying and cheating in the middle right the only way that a quality of outcome is possible is if the one in control of the game is a sovereign, which is why the the, the state then seeks the sovereign um, responsibilities of God. Yeah, and the the family is perceived by the state then uh, when it f- performs these functions as a rival government. That's the church right. is seen as a rival government, and that it cannot tolerate. And so, one of the reasons the family is asset stripped. One of the reasons the with inheritance taxes, for example, in uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, in parts of the USA, um, uh, one of the reasons that uh, the church is marginalized um, and uh, increasingly um, regulated, and there's an attempt increasingly for the state to control the church, is that which, by the way, does happen because of charity status. Uh, we ran into this as a church uh, and we didn't know it was the case until we ran into it. But let's say somebody in your congregation, their house burns down and they are, their insurance doesn't cover it or they didn't have adequate coverage on their insurance. And uh, so they, they are, they've lost all of their possessions and they now need to go and rent a house. Um, the, for the, the, the church could um, uh, make a, a one-off um, support uh, check to that family, um, but no regular support. Let's say they needed their rent paid for twelve months, uh, two years. The church is not allowed to do that. It's not allowed to do that. They they talk about the now a blind curtain for giving, so that the congregation wouldn't even be allowed technically under the charity law to know what the what the gift was going to. Uh, this is in Canada. So um, it's incredible the degree of interference now. And why would that? Why on earth would the state not want the church to cover the rent for twelve months of a given family on a monthly basis? While because it creates a parallel uh, sphere of government, which the church Mm -hmm. is, but the state does not want it to be. Why strip the family of its assets and try and prevent families like here in the UK? passing down property to their children because that creates a rival. Uh, so in, in, for those who don't know, Nate, um, here, here in England, inheritance tax, uh, there is a, 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 a inheritance tax, tax-free ceiling of about 250,000 pounds. 
Um, and then after that, the, the, the estate of any family is taxed at about 40%. Now, um, you, you basically what tends to happen is that then is that families whose estates attract inheritance tax have to sell their property within a few months because the tax bill is due almost immediately. So they immediately have to sell their property just so that they can pay the massive tax bill. And uh, so why? Well, because the family is a rival government in its own sphere. That's the way statism sees it. It wasn't meant to be that way because the state was a ministry of justice. It wasn't, as you said, the patriarch. It wasn't the family. It wasn't the church. It wasn't private charity. But as it moves in and tries to then take over all of those spheres, it must practically regulate them and tax them out of existence as rival forms of government. Otherwise, the statist vision of a totalitarian view of the state that treats every other area of life in parts to whole relationship can't be realized. I talk about a, a civil law that directly contradicts God's law that commands godly fathers to leave an inheritance for their children. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. All right. We talked well, for longer than you wanted, Ryan. You. What do you want to do now? <laughs> speak, Ryan. Speak. Speak that we've I may gone, see thee. Uh, <laughs> you've got. I was just going to say you've gone for uh, depth rather than uh, rather than scope in our uh, our answers today, and uh, I'm uh, I'm here for it. I appreciate both those answers uh, or the the complete answers to both those questions. Um. And we also we had to deal with uh, with Nate coming on board, and again we are uh, we're delighted to uh, to have him with us, gents. Uh, we had uh, we had several other questions that uh, we're not going to have a chance to get to today. We might uh, run another Q and A episode going forward in the uh, over the course of the summer. Uh, thanks to everyone who's been uh, been sending in these questions. I remember I forget where I was. I heard it on the. Uh, just on the issue of uh, welfare and uh, taxation, that you al- you always get more of whatever it is you subsidize. You know, so whatever behaviors you reward, uh, you are effectively incentivizing those. So we've uh, we've incentivized uh, generational welfareism, uh, and I was just thinking as you were talking, man, can you imagine what would happen if we if we incentivized and subsidized literally anything else? You know, if we subsidized yeah. t- taking elderly parents into your own home uh, yeah. instead of uh, forcing them to uh, to apply for a pension and uh, try to pay rent on uh, on something else, but, uh, there are yeah we've we we as families we have as churches uh, just I guess to uh, to summarize or to reiterate. It's not uh, not automatically or unilaterally that uh, that these organizations have failed. It's that they have deliberately had their legs cut out from under them, and that's, that's right. uh, kind of the uh, the status we're at. Appreciate the uh, the detail that uh, that you both went into uh, on that question. So we'll uh, we'll leave it there uh, for today. I remind you again that from him and through him and to him are all things. May God alone be glorified 
This is the podcast for cultural reformation, and we'll look forward to being with you again next week.